jumping forward 20 years from our last Levity Zone episode's dip into my deep history in Prague, we join yours truly, Dr. Bruce, and a very special audience back in June of 2014. We gathered in the lush green of a spring-fed valley in dry, far northern California to honor the life and work of alchemist Dr. Alexander Sasha Shulgin. Sasha had passed through his own form of ascension just the week before. I had been fortunate enough to share some final words with Sasha a month prior when I related to him my hope that his work would be carried on. The following talk, which I have called the Shulgin Chip, is a visionary projection of that hope. So, hello. <laughs> Everyone's... Uh essential oiled or oiled essentially so thank you for coming out this late this early so last year what we did just to ex explain the setup story this is a story that i hope will help set us up for tonight so last year i told the story of how we all were two to three inch long proto primates 55 million years ago and we lived on the canopy of the jungle and what our lives were like. Do you remember that story? One of the things of the story was, how did insectivores live? Well, they lived in these cuddle puddles of protection. I'll give you a little bit of a redux of this, because this is a setup for why I'm telling this story, which I'm hoping will carry through to this evening. So in that story, I had read an article in Science about a 55-million-year-old femur bone this big that was found femur bone, recognizable as a, a, the ancestor of all the primates and the lemurs and the monkeys. That's the common ancestor. And so I had this flash, this sort of endogenous flash of, oh my god, we lived this way. Uh, we, we are insectivores, actually. And so how we lived was we ran around on these limbs, on these highways. It's probably why we're so good at driving cars. <laughs> but we hunted dragonflies. The dragonfly was the big kill. It was the big game. And they were a little bit bigger then, let's, let's face it. They ate, we ate flower petals, and we ate uh, leaves. And we also, for our sugar, we found tree sap. Insectivores do this thing with tree sap. So it's a burger, fries, and a shake diet. So all of you people out there that, you know, look at fast food as you're going past. Uh, it's in your genes for almost 70 million years, a burger, fries, and a shake. So I told the story of what if you could put yourself back in that time? How did they live? How did we live? And in my imagination, this young teenage proto-primate, I called her Overdrive, she peels herself away from the ball at dawn because she sees a glistening globule in the distance on the limb. And what that is is tree sap, that's pure sugar for them. So she creeps along that limb, she gets her little lips onto it, and she's sucking down the sugar, and one eye is looking to the ball, because if they see her, she gets busted. You know, sound familiar? But the other eye is looking forward on the limb, and there's this trippy color pattern, little squares. And she's like, oh my god, look at that. What's happening is that's a tree snake. So after the Chichlub impact, the, the asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs, there were really no predators in the forest canopy except for tree snakes. 
they were our evolutionary driver. So as she's tripping out on this pattern of scales, which is co-evolving with us for 40 million years, the head of the snake is coming down under that branch and it's going to snap her ass down if she doesn't snap out of it. So that's what gave us our vision, 3D and high acuity. And that's why when we take out our phones and we look at screens, we're the only animal that's fixated on screens and pixelated things. So that serpent is today, it's called technology, it's called media. It's grown up with us. We, we've invented it outside in the extant world. So that was the story. So for last year was, if you feel pressured, if you feel the world crushing in, you know, all these terrible news stories and mania and too many texts and your brain is mush and everything, well, roll back the clock, snap out of the trance while you're sucking down your sugar because that's eating your ass. You know, it's eating your prana, it's eating everything, right? But what do you do to restore your power as a, as a human being? Return to the ball, to the community. Get back in that ball. If you can form these close body connected things or balls and also make a lot of eye contact, you reestablish the power of the network. And that's the fundamental power of, of who we are. And that that has a big enough force to push everything back, period. So three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning in the tea house, it was all cuddle puddles, all puppy piles. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> and at one point, I think I was misbehaving in some way, and somebody laughed, and the laughter, the giggle, moved through all the piles and vibrated the whole system. So I, it was a group mind. It was a common mind. So that's the state that this community has access to. It has access to that more so than probably any existing human community we can do this thing so that's the setup for this year's story so what i'm going to read now to set up this story is a piece about sasha shulgin because sasha has passed and this is his graduation weekend that we're celebrating and this is in sasha's words about his first psychedelic experience this sets up this story so sasha writes the most compelling insight of that day was that this awesome recall had been brought about by a fraction of a gram of a white solid, but that in no way whatsoever could it be argued that these memories had been contained within the white solid. He wrote, Everything I had recognized came from the depths of my memory and my psyche. I understood that our entire universe is contained in the mind and the spirit. We may choose not to find access to it, we may even deny its existence, but indeed it is there inside us, I would say inside each of us, and there are chemicals that can catalyze its availability. This is what Sasha wrote on his first encounter. This is why we're honoring him today with this. And I'm actually dedicating this talk to Paul Torres, who is in hospital in uh, Los Angeles, who has a fairly aggressive cancer. So this is for Paul. So how did I come upon this thing? Well, I was in Ojai with a friend. He had loaded the pipe. And this is like a Hollywood moment. He's firing it up and the smoke is swirling. And then he says, now, go. You know, it's like, <laughs> and he did, I took a big drop and stuff started happening. And I looked up in the sky and this juggernaut was coming down. <laughs> 
But before that, I went into the crimson space, which was the full power of return to nature. It's like, I'm home. You get that feeling, I'm home. But I was home really fast. Like, oh, I'm home pretty quickly here. And then there's this thing in the sky. And I turned around and I grabbed my friend. And I was nonverbal at this point. But I grabbed him and looked deep into his eyes as I trying to communicate. Like, hey, something's actually happening here. He dilated and fell back. And he said, this was not helpful. So he fell to the ground. And then I looked back up and I saw this thing chugging down. And it was amazing. It was this totality. And it was basically saying, okay, now it's time. <laughs> now. But there was this whole sort of Laurel and Hardy flubbedness about it's not supposed to be happening, even though it is happening. And so I started asking questions <laughs> to the oncoming juggernaut, to the totality. Uh, totalities can get pissed off with questions. How that explain that works later. So I said to it, is this death? <laughs> you know? And the totality says, do you see time in this thing? I said, no. And it said, uh, well, it, death is your invention. You know, it's, it's your creation. And then as it was coming to consume me, I said, well, what about, what about mathematics and automobiles and planets? And the totality says, that's all dross. That's all reflections off the totality, which is this thing. Focus on the totality as it comes and it's coming and because of all of this sort of thing it just sort of crashed through me and it and it went down into the earth and i fell to my knees and and i was like i was totally synced to the entire planet it was like whoa and you get that feeling of how could you come from any other place but this you know you're just whoa um, but it was still a kind of a laurel and hardy thing because my friend said God damn it, you know, you should have fallen back and totally submitted to this whole thing. But as a result of all this, I got a good look at the totality as he was coming down. So the next day I was sort of collapsed. Talking to a book editor, I'm doing a chapter on cosmogenesis for this upcoming book. And then I suddenly asked the question, wait a minute, that totality that was coming is made by my neurons. I don't subscribe to the theory that, you know, UFOs came and parked at my temple brow and just unloaded all that experience and then you know, left. I don't subscribe to that. I'm just too much of a materialist. It had to be made by my neurons. So I said to myself, well, then how? How could this enormity get made inside my little frail monkey mind? You know, Terence McKenna used to say, where is it written that the primate monkey mind is engineered for the capacity to understand everything? Where is it written you know, that we are supposed to be able to do this? Well, it then came to me in a flash that, wait a minute, this is how it works. And usually these things for me come as metaphors, bizarre metaphors. And I was floating over Los Angeles. You know, the L.A. freeway system was built in a kind of chaotic way you know no spider would ever have woven such a web so there's all these freeways go crisscrossing so and i had this flash of there's la 1972 and there's all the freeways and everyone's driving volkswagen bugs you know because that was 1972 and a richter scale nine earthquake hits the southland and what happens if you're in a volkswagen bug when uh, an earthquake hits do you know you pop into neutral. 
<laughs> you're thrown into neutral. This happened to a friend of mine on the Bay Bridge, and as the 89 earthquake happened, she popped into neutral and she thought the engine was falling out of her car, and then she was swearing at the mechanics, she was swearing at everybody, and then the section of uh, Bay Bridge came down right in front of her and went bam. And she stopped, and like she still couldn't convince herself that the mechanic had done something to collapse the entire bridge now. <laughs> so this is what happens. Now, in your mind, the mind under shock, a state of shock, this could include a near-death experience. This could include uh, drugs, a way to shock the, uh, the monkey mind. It could include deep meditation. It could include extreme sports. It could include, you know, many other ways to get there. Consider that if the mind is shocked as a system and it's somehow vibrated chemically or however, it's like this LA freeway system. And what happens is the beetles, the 72 beetles are electrons going down sodium channels and other microtubules and there's lots of structure. But it's a quantum dynamical system. So you introduce a little bit of uncertainty somehow and guess what happens? In high school, did you do the two-slit experiment? So you do this two-slit experiment, cut these two slits and shine a light on it, and it shows this interference pattern. And you go, well, why? The light should just go simply through. And uh, the fellow who figured out why there was this pattern was Dick Feynman, Richard Feynman, who used to come down to our department in the 80s. He was a curious character, if there ever was one. But uh, what he figured... Hmm? It was a Sambista. He was at the Samba. He's in December. He saved tambourine, and he never yeah. got to Tuva, but they, they got something to Tuva. <laughs> right. um, so what he worked out is the way that the quantum level works is that the photons are particles and waves, and they come through these slits, and they actually take all the pathways, but they sum up. So you get this whole pattern. So those are called Feynman histories. So that whole system is called a sum over histories. So you introduce uncertainty, you wobble the monkey brain. The electrons are like, whoa, we generate a bloom of Feynman histories. Guess what that is? Does anyone guess what that is? That bloom, that sudden, it's very fast, it's total. The flash, the flash, which is just indescribable. The flash, boom, activated. Now this may happen in an NDE, it may happen in other ways, but this flash happens, so suddenly your, your entire gray matter is full of potential pathways that are all through the gray matter, like from every potential point where this electron was traveling, it now could kind of go anywhere. However, your brain still has structure, so the electron's not gonna bounce out of the sodium channel that it was in for all these hundreds of millions of years. It's gonna keep going. So what happens is there's then a collapse of all those functions. So this collapse of the wave function down, and here's the magic. This is step one. This whole thing then collapses down nicely. It collapses down onto the neuron, but notice, here's your Volkswagen Beetle. It says, oh, I could go off the highway, I'm in neutral, but it doesn't, because it hits the guardrail. <laughs> but, and it's still trucking along. But all these potential pathways bloomed out. Now they fell in, but they fell in on the whole road. The whole road is lit up now. Because the quantum world doesn't understand about neurons, doesn't understand about electrons traveling places. It's just doing its wave function thing. So for a longer time, you have a mind is now fully turned on. So picture this, LA freeway system, the shock, the flash, 
and then picture it as your neurons, all those pathways are turned on as equipotential for a period of time. So that means that the electron actually could go anywhere. It's potentiated to go anywhere in the system. All the electrons are potentiated to go anywhere. And you've got your neuron and thousands of connections back here, and then there's a head here, and there's neurotransmitters going across. It's a huge network. Does anyone know if you try to trace all the pathways through that network, you know how big a number that is? Does anyone? It's a fractillion? No, a fractillion. It's a fractillion, exactly. A bazillion? A bazillion. It's larger than the number of countable particles in the universe. Okay? So the turned on brain, get this, I'll say this again, the turned on brain, as far as a system of information, a system of reception, transmission, informational representation is bigger than the universe. So here you have a system that is lit up. It's an informational system. This is kind of outside the box of science. You know, this is a little woo-woo here. But now it's a transmitter receiver. It's like a huge router. So potentially, each of those pathways through the mind, of which there are more than the countable number of particles of the universe, does it not have the ability to be coupled non-locally? So Bell's non-locality. Now, my neighbor, Nick Herbert, who's an expert in this, is always slapping my wrists and my head And when I talk in classical terms about this stuff, but he's an expert in Bell's non-locality. So, in fact, is it not a system now that actually can talk to the whole universe? So that's where my flash came back, and I said to myself, Oh, my God, when you see God, when you see Mr. or Mrs. Ineffable, when you experience the totality... It is the totality. It is. It is the universe. If God is the universe, I mean, it is the real thing. Now, we interpret it through our filters, through our filters. So after this flash, and then you have this tale of like, oh, the totality, you know, or you're unfolding like the being on the infinite plane, and you're going, blah, and the plane is going, brang, and, you know, stuff is like that that happens. So you have that, and then... The whole system is, is settling down, but is it not potentially reverberating with every star system, every speck of dust in alien Hoover vacuum cleaners, every, you know, thought that is going on in other civilizational uh, fast food franchisee owners? You know, is it not potentially reverberating with the whole cosmos? So when you see this shit in your head, when you see the stuff that, oh my God, you know, uh, you know, I have no training to see the full function and structure of an alien spacecraft in my little brain. But where did it come from? It didn't come from the UFO parking at your temple and unloading its cargo. It came because you resonated with the real thing that is really out there through your filters, through your personal filters. It is real. That is real communication. I've been at this thing for a long time, so I'll tell you this funny story. About 10 years ago, I went to the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, and the Hayden Planetarium has the biggest computer projection dome in the world, real-time projection with 3D models on it. Our friend Carter Emmert sneaks into the Hayden Planetarium at 2 o'clock in the morning to take guests in there, and you lie down on a hippie rug that's over where the Zeiss door is. And for the first time we were there, it was like 2004 or 5, he put his laptop on his little hippie lap and 
we got a joystick out and he said, we're going to load Sloan Sky Survey Hubble data for the first time on this dome, for the very first time, where we can see and fly through galactic sheet walls, right? We're going to do this. Whoa! You know, I took a video of this thing happening for the very first time. He does this thing called the Tour of the Universe. He did a TED Talk in this. So here we are piloting through, you know, the Orion supercluster and the this and the that cluster. And, and I realized, holy shit, what if there was an alien, Carter Emmert, who snuck into his planetarium with his people after hours and was looking at this same structure? It would be an example of having the same thing in your head as some alien astronomer a long way away seeing. But then I thought, okay, to do this right, to get sync on this, I have to swing myself mentally around to the other side of the Orion supercluster and start scanning. Because I can do this in my head. I can do full 3D models in my head. So like I swung it around and I was going slice by slice, bing, 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 seeing it from those angles, and boom, eyes blinking. Surprise. Like, ha! Oh! We're seeing the same thing. Just boom. This was my first sort of experiment in trying to get this non-locality thing going. In their head, they're looking at the same superstructure, resonance, and you can get the communications. This is a crazy idea. So where does this all go? We roll ourselves back to the turned on brain. Okay, we're starting a process where the visionary movement is going to undergo a total transformation in the next 20 years. And it's coming from left field, and nobody can see it yet. And I'm privileged to be able to see this happening because I'm working in the origin of life field. I'm using computing techniques to come up with models for the origin of life at the moment. That's another talk. But what we're trying to design is something called a Genesis engine. And it'll be a piece of computing hardware about this big that will run 10 million chemical experiments on board at once, flush them out and restart them. And a supercomputer watching this whole thing. This is to push complexity up in the chemical milieu and search for clues to the origin of life. This will cost about a billion dollars, so if you know of anyone that <laughs> wants their name on it. But then I started to study a chemical experiments, and I thought, wow, look at these microfluidics arrays. You know, you can stick yourself, and it'll do five different blood tests. And then I started thinking, wow, there's whole chemical factories in there. And then like, oh, wait a minute. You're going to have, in the 2030s, they're talking about subcutaneous chips. They can take blood serum, make a pharmaceutical, and stick it back into your blood supply on demand wirelessly. So then I thought, wait a minute, there are people doing fMRI studies of people on psychedelic states. What if you, you know, went into your local shop, or whatever this is in 2039, and got installed the strips under your skin to basically map your entire brain in real time? And you had what I named the Shulgin chip. Here, Sasha. The Shulgin chip on your shoulder. <laughs> and you could then do the following, because you could say, all right, I'm a particular warrior of the serotonin 7 system, and I also understand the weakness of my serotonin 2 system, so I can crash out easily, but I can see it happening in my embedded fMRI. I can see this thing going on, and I can monitor and I can titrate what is being generated in my Shulgin chip. And it can generate the entire Shulgin index. Thank you very much. So reports come into the chip in real time. And 
and then they go out of you in real time to a network. The brain fMRIs are compared in this gigantic supercomputer in cyberspace. So this like super overmind model going all the time. So if you kind of swerve off a little bit, the super brain model, which is all the current brains are, they're like, ooh, new territory. And so everybody sort of starts swerving that way and stuff like that happens. So where does this go? Well, I always said to Terence, why did you pick this date? You know, you'll be like a milk carton with a best used by. <laughs> so I'm, I'm throwing a date out there of around 2039 because it's a nice number. And all the cyberpunk writers now are writing books about mid-century. They're writing their sci-fi about mid-century. It's all set in the 2040s. So in the 2040s, what we would experience is something so far beyond anything that happened in the 60s. So far beyond. Because here you now have real-time feedback to a subtle degree where the mind, you're running it like an instrument, like a beautifully tuned instrument. So not only are you able to come to the super high state, which we kind of sometimes happen by accident, right? We sort of like we're surprised when it happens and we forget that we were in it, you know, afterwards. Kids being born today, you know, in this year, will grow up into a world where they can navigate themselves into high states and maintain it and operate from that state. And also they'll use kundalini and they'll use yoga and techniques and meditation and stillness and all that, the training for that. And some of the people here kind of are already doing those practices. What does this mean? So suddenly humans who could get high and into the super vibratory turned on state by accident, say 2000 years ago, or by going to a place to where they had nitrous coming out of the rocks and rotting wheat, you know, in goblets, you know, they could get there, or they had a brain injury, so they were turned on, you know, all of our religious founders, so they had some kind of tricked out brain system, so only a few individuals had this. Maybe in prehistory, maybe in the upper Paleolithic there were more, but in history only a few individuals could do it, and here you have a peppering of a little bit more in the 19th century, and, but then you have this explosion after World War II, you know, into the 60s, this huge bolus of, of turned on minds that then of course turned back to the suburbs and, you know, the me generation and all that, but then you have these waves of turned onness, and then the Shulgin's creating all these different compounds and others creating different compounds, and you have tech coming. And tech turns on our minds through the snake. It turns on our minds through visual things. So we're completely trained for that. And here you have, we're cruising into the 2050s, and you have this force in the world of economic chaos and oligarchs who will run the 21st century. They are the inheritors of our future, by the way. Uh, the thousand billionaires outside the US. And this whole force is climbing up here, but climbing up hidden on the other side. And this is what you guys are. You're the hidden counter to this. Everything has its opposite. Is this tech of the turned on mind, of the hermetic principles, climbing and climbing and climbing. What is it climbing toward? Well, if you're great followers of science fiction, you know, as I am, do you remember Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke? So this is probably all woo-woo too, but when you think of the kind of trip that will be possible in the 2040s, that will make us look like sort of fumbling, you know. So what do these people do with it? They get into a state, into a space we can't even comprehend. We have had glimpses of it, but we can't comprehend. And they're operating full time in this space. Then their minds are tied into a network. So they're using the, you know, 
things that Twitter becomes, to, to tweet their state to other minds, which are then synchronized through the Shulgin chips. So it's a perfect chemical and digital and biological synchrony that goes through the network. So there can be a section of humanity that lights up, boom. And it can be quite large. Of course, you know, the cops will be banging doors down, and you know, it's, it's always the way, right? This will make for a lot of good Hollywood thrillers. So where, where are we going? Well, I call this monkey ascension. Now, we can't now know what this does, but I can tell you, in a situation where you have this kind of activation of minds going on, I mean, what else can we do? Is, we can, you know, repair automobiles and fly airplanes. We can do all this sort of physical, logistical shit in the world. But really, it's what can be done inside the bone structure of this brain case that matters. So if we're able to then cruise into incredible capability in the brain case that's also synchronized, we not only create something new, a community that is what I call opening the pore, Occasionally, people are in this beautiful synchrony, like we're trying to do here, actually. I call it the torus. Like, I can see that energy, I can sort of shape it sometimes. And then I try to form this ring in the room. And sometimes I stand up, and you can turn your body and spray the energy out to people. Just, it's just amazingly malleable stuff. And then the group is in synchrony. So we're all trying to do this in our experiences. But what happens when this happens on a massively global scale with brains that are turned on? And what happens when you pass information into a system, even if it's a system as large as the cosmos, and you start rattling it and rattling it, and then more brains join, more flashes happen, you rattle it, you rattle it. In my dream of dreams, at some point, just before economic and global and climactic catastrophe, we fucking wake Big Daddy up. We wake up Big Daddy universe. The thing becomes conscious. So somewhere in there, the turned on mind, not only can it wobble with the universe, but if you're seeing the ineffable, if you're seeing all this stuff, what are you seeing? You might be seeing the act of the cosmogenesis. You might be looking back and saying, I see you, and what it's doing is it's looking at you, and it said, that's a good thing, because I, I did this for you. I exploded this big for you kids, so that one day you would see me. And this sounds like a woo-woo idea, but, you know, Wheeler, you know, was a contemporary of Richard Feynman, wrote about you need the observer to create the reality of the cosmos. So. Perhaps this is the function of what we're doing as a species. If we can get a good look, not just at Mr. Toad, that's just a metaphor. We're getting a good look at the cosmos, a real good look at it. And when we have that look at it, it manifests into something new. Because we've seen it. I see you. I see you. And then it's totality. Then it truly is. Because time is gone in this state, right? Sometimes when you're in a state you feel that time doesn't run anymore. Well, in this kind of turned-on state, time is not a factor. So, in the history of the universe, all there ever was and ever is, is history from the beginning. And the matter and the energy and all those factors add up to nothing. This is what Guth tells us. That if you added all the dark matter and dark energy and anti and positive and everything and you collapse the universe down, it goes to zero. 
So the universe is just a bunch of differences, but it's histories. So if time is not in the equation, and if in this turned on state there is no time, you'll see the entire history of the cosmos through your filters. So then it becomes the history that the human mind is now grappling with. This is the history of our cosmos. It's all information. It's all stored. And so can you imagine that state? Somebody will hit that. Somebody will be out in the echoing, like this music, they'll be out in the echoing void and they'll see it all and their mind will ingest all of those histories, all of those tracks, all that information will be processed and will it be childhood's end? We'll be all floating up in a glass bubble and things like that. But it's going to be something. So in, in some ways, what I'm trying to argue for is this is the great project of being. This, what you're doing right here in this community, is the great project of being. This is the purpose of us being here, period. Because we're the only ones that are going to get there. The oligarchs that are taking over the oil fields aren't going there. So. What are human beings for? You know, this is what Kurt Vonnegut asked. What are people for? I can't think of any greater, greater project than doing this thing. Use what we've been given by four billion years of evolution, almost by accident, to put all the science and to put all the arts and to put all the right chemicals and the right technology in this thing collectively as a community and open that pore and communicate and take a look but also say, I see you now. The greatest project that ever was is why we're here. So that's uh, my talk for today. <laughs>
I would get up and like, oh my god, I, I'm not me, I'm just part of this thing, this, this group mind. What a relief to say, I don't have to just run me anymore, I'm part of this, and I just sat back down, like, oh, what a relief. <laughs> to be out of me and in this group mind, and the group mind was doing its thing, and Mountain Girl was laughing, and so everybody started laughing and stuff like that, but if we do more and more of this, we're preparing for the day. We're training for that day when we can do this with technology and the things I was just talking about. So it's like it's an uphill road, but it's been going for tens of thousands of years. And this group is the group. You know, where else? If you're not going to do this on the playa, it's just, it's just too much confusion and energy. It's going to be done in these smaller group gatherings. You know, two, three hundred people is pretty big. 80 people, whatever. Friday night dinner kinds of things, maybe. But small groups, intentional. We've done our healing shit, or we, we can do our healing shit and sort of do the do the load of dirty laundry and get it out into the dryer and then go on to the greater project, which is to be part of this fantastic thing. This is a great project of being thing. So uh, just suggesting that we can do that. We're experienced. We, now we're in the group. We gotta go to, we gotta go to the group and power up that group. Was there a question here? As a suggestion for, um, for maybe later, I, um, many of you know I'm a Lama, Tibetan Lama. I have some suggestions for techniques from the Tibetan tradition, from Taoism and, and so on, for um, uh, guiding and channeling, also for uh, getting you, yourself out of tight spots if, you, uh, if you're feeling freaked out. So, for instance, if um, your sympathetic nervous system is engaged and your heart is racing, your uh, blood pressure is up, you're probably panting, there is a very simple technique to trigger the parasympathetic nervous system and calm you right down and lower your, your blood pressure, your, your heart rate, and so on. You can do that in seconds. In seconds. So I think what this is pointing out is this is the, the great projects. It's all the traditions of mindfulness of energies all of it has to be put into play here to do this thing but this is the the convergence this is why you're here and other practitioners are here and we're just trying to converge all these practices so anyway i'll leave you with that i just want to say if i'm walking around and you feel like you want to get into a group thing and just grab me into your group and we'll just start making eye contact or whatever i'm here to be of service so uh, with that thank you very much and uh, we have our next speaker coming up i would like to thank the visionary science fiction author ramez nam for his novel nexus which had a big impact on me in my opinion, this book is an avatar of a whole new breed of cyberpunk that centers not just on future tech, but on the critical need for humanity to enter into group mind for our next evolution and our very survival. Nexus is the book which inspired this talk, and I allude to it partway through where I mentioned the new breed of writers aiming at the world of the 2040s. I won't spoil it for you by saying anything more here, but I highly recommend you give it a read. And I'm sure it will find its way into a Hollywood thriller sometime soon. This episode's music issues from the album Circadia by the artist Aerothyme, 
and Jacob Amon did his usual sterling job on the cover art, etching the first graphical notion of the Shulgin chip over a photo of my reading of Sasha's first experience report from way back in 1960.